0: Fasten your seatbelts and grab your binoculars. We're going on a road trip. Though many fly south for the winter, hundreds of birds can be found throughout Wisconsin year-round. And a few bold species even travel to the state just for the season. There's nothing like the quiet thrill of bird watching in winter when the lack of leaves, open water, and white snowy environments make it easier to spot our feathered friends. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Winter in Wisconsin can be dark and cold, but that doesn't mean it isn't a great time to see and learn about birds. From the snowy owl to the cardinal, plenty of birds make Wisconsin their home all year round, and winter is prime time for viewing the species that live in our backyards and communities. Today, we explore the world of winter birds in Wisconsin with advice on how to identify them, feed them, and ensure their survival. Join us today and have your birding questions answered by calling eight hundred seven eight zero nine seven four two or you can email us at ideas at wpr dot org Jeanette Kelly is a wildlife biologist, ornithologist, and educator at Beaver Creek Reserve where she spent the last 11-plus years as Citizen Science and Education Director. With more than 25 years of experience, Jeanette works with individuals, local universities, and conservation organizations to collaborate with international researchers on a project that will enable Wisconsin and the Chippewa Valley to participate in high-impact research and education of migratory species throughout North America. Jeanette, thank you so much for being part of our program today.
1: I'm so glad to be here, Shireen. Thank you.
0: Jeanette, why is it that some birds migrate south and other species just don't? Have they adapted to the cold weather when other species can't? What's the story?
1: Uh, Yes. Yes to that question about adaptation and adapting to the environment. It also has, it, it becomes very basic where it's all animals, including us, we need are food, water, and shelter. And for a lot of the birds we see here, especially in the summertime, those birds are insectivores and they are looking for insects. So all those bird species that predominantly feed on insects, they have nothing to eat here this Mm -hmm. time of year in Wisconsin. So a large part of our population does migrate south. And that can also be water. They maybe need water, you know, food, water, shelter are the things that we need to survive. And so water with our freezing water throughout the state. That's another thing that pushes a lot of species further south. Now, the birds that stick around this area, like you mentioned, the cardinal, and I love the fact that you brought You brought up that fact that there are a lot of bird species that stick around through the wintertime because so often people think about birding in the spring, in the summer, but there is fantastic birding throughout the winter months. And for those birds that stick around, they are well adapted to be here. They have a food source. Most of them are seed eaters and they can find shelter and they have enough food sources to gather water or they know where to find those little niches of open water that remain throughout the state.
0: Has it always been this way that some birds stay, some birds go, or have there been evolutionary changes over a period of time?
1: Well, certainly throughout our lifetime, (laughs) that's the way it's been. Yes, and, and, you know, long, long time ago, uh, not sure exactly, probably still some amount of migratory action. But for a, yes, I mean, from our knowledge, migration is been a continued part of birds' lives, and it is that fact of finding what they need. Now, for some of those species, those migrations are changing, or the destination of where they go to is changing. And we are seeing that more commonly, for instance, eastern bluebirds. We just finished the Christmas bird count in January, and some folks had eastern bluebirds on their counts. For many years, it's been common to see American robins sticking around throughout the winter months, but more commonly now we're seeing eastern bluebirds. It's because the climate is changing some, the winters aren't quite as harsh, they're finding that water and food source that they need, and they're able to stick around. So although for a long time throughout throughout history, birds have been migrating, we are seeing some changes in that.
0: You mentioned robins. Uh, We had uh, an email from Tammy who uh, said that she was wondering if you'd seen the robins in Eau Claire this past week. She said that she, she
1: saw flocks of mm. uh, of several dozen. Are they robins? Is that what she's seen? Well, it could be. I am not exactly sure. I have not seen them, but... I, it's, it's definitely very possible. We know at Beaver Creek Reserve, just outside of Eau Claire, we have an area where no matter what time of winter, you can always find robins there. It's a little tucked away part of the reserve where there's a spring. So there's always open water. There's plenty of berry bushes for the birds to eat off of. So it is, I would not be surprised if she has seen a flock of American robins. The other possibility that it could be is I have heard people talking a lot about cedar waxwings. Mm. And they are a bird similar in size, a little bit smaller than the American robin, but they also do congregate in large flocks. And I know people have been seeing flocks of cedar waxwings. So it could be either of those two species.
0: Mm, okay. In addition to those, um, what other birds are
1: we likely to see this time of year in in Wisconsin? Sure. Some of the ones that stick around and may seem commonplace, but still really neat birds, and sometimes. Don't maybe get the intention that they need, but a lot of the great birds you can see in winter, the northern cardinal, which you had mentioned earlier, the black-capped chickadee. We are lucky in Wisconsin to have two species of nuthatches. We have both the white-breasted and red-breasted nuthatch, and they are full of such fun little antics and so great to watch in the trees and at your feeders. We have... Woodpeckers. Lots of species of woodpeckers can be found here in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and they are a great one to learn to watch and observe and to identify. I saw a pileated
0: woodpecker in our yard several times. Yeah. And they're so bizarre looking, aren't
1: they? They are. They are huge. They seem like they shouldn't exist. And sometimes I think people are frightened when they see them fly up to their window feeders or even fly across the road. And I will say I have lived throughout the country and the Area here in the Chippewa Valley where I currently reside, I have never lived anywhere with such a high population of pileated woodpeckers. I literally see them every day, which I think is is pretty amazing.
0: They are they're really cool looking, but they are they look like dinosaurs. To yes, me. yes. We
1: at Beaver Creek Reserve we have a bird banding program that has been going on for over twenty years, and occasionally we do. Capture a pileated woodpecker that we then do some measurements on and do health checks on and band them and release them. But I'll tell you, when we get a pileated woodpecker, it is a handful. It requires a couple people to hold on to it. And everyone at the Nature Center knows we have it because it's very loud. Oh, yeah, I bet. I bet. Are there, this is a,
0: uh, I'm just going to ask, are there birds that specifically just come here? For the winter that we only see during the winter, or is that not a thing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just like we're talking when we mentioned migration at the beginning of the show, some birds are seeking warmer temperatures, less snowfall, open water. And you have to remember, when you think about North America, we are not at the farthest northern tip so there is northern part of this country uh, of this uh, land north of us so those northern species those boreal species those tundra species they come down to wisconsin because we are their florida so we see birds like snowy owls we can sometimes see great gray owls rough-legged hawks which are my favorite of the hawk species and also some of the great feeder birds are pine siskins poles there was a big push of evening grosbeaks beaks this year. A lot of people have been seeing evening grosbeaks beaks. In the summertime, we have the rose-breasted grosbeaks beaks mm-hmm. that grace our backyards. But in the winter months, sometimes we are lucky enough to see evening grosbeaks. beaks. Now, I will say... A lot of those winter visitors are dependent upon the weather and the extremes, either up north or here. When there are more extreme conditions up north, a shortage of food, we see big pushes of these species come down here. And we, I know the snowy owls in the state have been lower than past years, and some of those songbird species that you may see at your feeder, like the pine siskins, the red poles, I haven't seen any, and I haven't heard anyone talking about them. Now that doesn't mean that their population, anything's wrong with their population. It just means that. They don't need to come down here this winter or for mm-hmm. a, whatever reason they're choosing not to come down. Another common one I should mention species is the junco. A lot of backyards right now are full of juncos feeding off the ground.
0: How do birds adapt to the colder weather? When, when it starts getting colder out, what happens to them that makes them you know, able to withstand these crazy
1: temperatures? Sure. That's a great question. One of them, maybe the idea that would pop into people's heads right away would be their feathers. And their feathers are a tremendous and extremely important resource for them. Let's think about a chickadee. So a small bird could easily fit in your hand, weighs about five nickels. And if you think about the feathers that are covering their body, we know feathers are warm because we... Spend a lot of money on down comforters and down coats, down sleeping bags. So we know the importance of feathers and the warmth that feathers can provide. But that little chickadee, I would estimate, has about 5,000 feathers covering its body. 5,000 feathers. And those feathers help insulate it they can move those in, those feathers individually and capture air under those feathers to help insulate it. It helps also to keep them dry, so dry from the snow or the freezing rain that we've had recently. So it helps those feathers keep them dry and keep them insulated from the warmth. So their feathers are a huge adaptation. Uh, another adaptation they have is the, the way their blood flows. Birds have a different type of blood flow system to help warm their blood and keep their blood from being so cool at their extremities. So in their legs and their feet, they have a different warming system for their bloods than blood than we do. And as many people probably notice, when we have extreme temperatures or big storms coming, Backyard bird feeders are often very, very busy, Mm -hmm. and that's because those birds are filling up on food, and often food with high-fat, high-protein that will help keep them warm. How do they know? How do they know that something's coming? Oh, isn't that a great question? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And I I often wonder that myself. And you know, I I don't know, and maybe there is someone out there that does know, and that's just something that uh, my knowledge doesn't cover, but they it's It's similar to your dogs. I mean, my dog knows when there's a thunderstorm coming, sure. or when people talk about having injuries and their their arthritis and their knee acts yes. up. But you know is the pressure change? Uh, you know, things changing in the climate that they are able to sense and and know. Uh, That makes sense. I can feel it in my bones. Right, exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, how cold is too cold, though? Is there a point where you really worry about the survival of the birds when it gets to a certain temperature or certain uh, weather conditions?
1: Yes. Now, there's probably the scientific answer for that and the more emotional answer to that. And I fondly remember my father when I was a kid, when it would be so cold out, and my dad would say, I just want to open the doors of the house and let all the animals come in right now. Yes. <laughs> let them all come in and warm up. Animals can survive at phenomenally cold temperatures and in very extreme weather. They may, to help survive those temperatures, May reduce their mobility. They may also kind of go into a, um, what's called a toper, not really a hibernation, like we would think of a black bear going to sleep for many months, but a toper where their body really does slow down and their heart rate might slow down so that they don't need to have as much energy or work as hard to keep their body warm. And and they can survive very, like I said, very cold temperatures. Um, what is too cold I, I don't really I don't really know because I have been shocked sometimes when I think there's no way I would go outside right now and I see birds in the bird mm-hmm. bath mm-hmm. and people say, "Well, oh my gosh, what's wrong with those birds? Don't they know they're going to freeze to death?" But I truly believe animals are intelligent enough to know what is safe for them and what is not safe for them.
0: Are there some species of birds that you, as a scientist, are more worried about than others when it comes to the the
1: cold weather? The cold weather, the the birds I would worry about the most are birds that have gotten off track, so to speak, in terms of they, for whatever reason, missed migration. They got blown off migration. They got confused on where they are. There was... On the Christmas bird count this year, there was two interesting birds picked up in Wisconsin. One was a black and white warbler. Now, you might not know what a black and white warbler is, but warblers, most people, if you're interested in bird, know that we think of summertime, you know, hot July when we think of warblers. And there was a warbler found in Racine County in December, mid-December. That bird I would worry about because it is not you know, maybe doesn't have quite the insulation capacity, cannot find the food source it normally would be looking for, which would be those high protein insects. Birds like that. We actually had a chipping sparrow a few years ago at Beaver Creek Reserve that we caught. It was the end of December. It was one of the latest records ever known of a chipping sparrow. And that bird I was very worried about. We actually saw it a few times at our feeders. We captured it a couple times and released it right away. But um, I would say, and this is me anthropomorphizing, that bird looked cold mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that <laughs> we, Understood. We, Understood. we felt like we should keep it and <laughs> keep Aww. it warm. But obviously, that's not something we would ever do. But right. it, it seemed cold to me. You're listening to Jeanette Kelly
0: on Route 51, our guest who is helping us explore the wild bird population during Wisconsin's icy winter months. Ahead, we'll hear tips on how to easily identify the birds in your backyard, and we'll answer Your questions, too. You can call us 800 780 9742 or email questions to us at ideas at WPR.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. We're back on Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Jeanette Kelly is with us today for a discussion on wild birds and their unique features. What would you like to know? You can email us, ideas at wpr.org, or join us by phone at 800-780-9742. Jeanette, I'm curious about some advice for beginning birders, uh, people who are just kind of getting into this. Um, what do you recommend? Are there websites, apps, um, anything that are that you'd say is a really good resource for somebody who's, who's trying to get into it?
1: It's a great question, Shireen, especially because people tend to find birding intimidating and they shouldn't birding is something anyone can do it does not have to be your background you do not you didn't don't have to have taken ornithology 501 in mm-hmm. <laughs> school mm-hmm. anyone can become a birder and you can do it uh easily you can make it more difficult it, it it's very very flexible the And yes, there are tons of resources out there. There's a lot of websites. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology has a great website all about birds. There's some fantastic apps through Audubon, the Merlin app through Cornell. There's a lot of different apps out there that people love and utilize. And I would encourage people, especially if they're seeking out websites or apps, try several different ones because in my mind, Resources for an identification are extremely individual. You could have 12 birders in here, and we would all hold up our favorite field guide, and they could all be different. So I think it's really important for everyone to research the different options out there and see what works best for you.
0: There are a lot. My my husband loves the Smart Bird ID app, for example. He's sure. got that up all the time. Yes. But, but I know he tried a whole bunch before he settled on what yeah. was, was really right for him. Yeah.
1: And even if you don't like it initially, try it again. The Merlin app, I actually dismissed originally. And then I took a trip to Florida where there was a lot of shorebirds that I might not know. And I used it not necessarily to identify what I would see, but as a check and balance for myself that I think this is what I'm looking at. Now let me pull it up on the Merlin app for the photo ID or the sound ID. And that really helped me. But I still say with all the, the technology we have out there to help us with identification, I think the best way to learn your birds is sit at your kitchen table with your cup of coffee and look out your backyard at a bird feeder. Mm-hmm. And even do that with someone who knows birds. Go birding with someone. that, And to start small. I think that's one of the biggest things is there's over 400 species of birds you can find here in Wisconsin. You don't need to learn all 400. Right. Start with five. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a doable
0: goal. Yeah. Pick, yeah.
1: pick five. And pick five that you are likely to see. Pick the chickadee. Pick the nuthatch. Pick the cardinal. And some people might think, oh, well, I know those. But do you know the red-breasted from the white-breasted nuthatch? Do you know the goldfinch from the purple finch from the housefinch? Pick those really common birds that you are likely to see a lot and nail them. Figure out how to identify them, what resources help you. Become confident in those. And once you do that, That's going to help you because you're going to learn those skills for identifying. What helped me know this is a downy woodpecker versus a hairy woodpecker? What are the key things that I'm looking at? That's really important in helping you learn to identify birds. So just sit down, pick five birds, learn them, and join with people. Join with local birders. Join with your local Audubon group or your local nature center like Beaver Creek Reserve. Do you have any
0: secret spots you'll share with us? Good spots to spot birds in the winter? Where do you go?
1: Um, Well, I last year went to, for the first time, and just booked another trip to go up to Zaxim Bog in Minnesota. And it's north of Duluth. And it is just a really cool place. I mean, bogs. Bogs Mm -hmm. are really cool to begin with. but to visit one in the winter where you're going to see a lot of birds that you just don't always get the opportunities to see. Evening grosbeaks, bohemian waxwings. I will brag a little bit, and last winter when I was up there with a friend, we were in our car, and out one window, we watched a snowy owl. Out the other window, we watched a great gray owl. I mean, it doesn't get much wow. better than that for a birder. Mm-hmm. Well, if we would have had a northern hawk owl on the hood, that would have really made it. But uh, it's really it's a it's a really neat place to go see some birds that you don't always get to see, and especially those winter birds. The other birds that are really, I think, amazing that you can find up there are black-billed magpies. Magpies are really more of a Western species. Yellow-billed magpies are only found in a small area in California. Uh, black-billed more throughout the West, but the fact that you can see a, black bird, a black-billed magpie a few hours from here I think is worth the trip. What about food sources? I mean, can food
0: sources give us some kind of clues on where to go to spot the uh, spot the birds that we're looking for? If we're wandering the trails, should we be looking for specific you know, berries and
1: bushes? Sure. Yeah. A lot of the birds like cedar waxwings, which we mentioned, or the bohemian waxwing, which I know people have been seeing this winter also coming into the area, those are fruit eating birds. So like the woman who emailed in talking about the flock of birds, if you see a flock of birds, or if you're looking for Bohemian wa- or cedar waxwings or bohemian waxwings, go where there are some old crabapple trees or uh, highbush cranberry bushes or things like that, and they're going to be eating those dried berries. If you're looking for the evening grosbeak or the crossbills, go where there's a lot of conifers. So definitely a, a birds that—another great place to look would be if you know there's open water or a little stream trickling. A lot of birds might be seeking out that area. Well,
0: winter birding
1: also requires a little
0: extra planning. Obviously, it's cold out there, so and layering. Uh, if you want to have fun, what do you recommend for clothing and gear? Is there any anything specific that people should really make sure that they have?
1: Well, for clothing, especially when it comes to birding, and if you are at a place like a nature reserve, a wildlife area that you're doing a lot of driving, for instance, like the Zaxxon Bogwood, I meant where I mentioned recently, is. You're doing a lot of driving to different locations. So I have learned you want to be in something that is. Warm in the car, but perfect for when you're out of the car. So you don't have to keep putting layers on back and forth. Because I'm going to tell you, when you pull up and you think and you suddenly see that black billed magpie or that, that red cross bill, you don't want to take the time to put on your hat and mittens and coat. You want to be able to jump out of that car. Mm-hmm. So I find fingerless gloves or, or mittens that you can pull back the top of very good for being able to use your binoculars, which then, of course, your binoculars. Mm-hmm. Keep your binoculars handy at all all times
0: Jeanette Kelly is answering questions about birding in winter in Wisconsin you can call us 800-780-9742 email questions as well that is ideas at wpr.org a little bit ago you were talking about water and how important it is for birds to find water it can be very hard for them uh,
1: to find that fresh water in the winter are heated bird baths a good idea Absolutely. Heated bird baths are excellent as long as you are keeping them clean and keeping them full. But it is amazing on those chilly days when you will see birds flocking to heated bird baths. If they cannot find a water resource, they will really seek out those areas. Birds do get a lot of water from their food that they consume, but they also most species do also need to have some water available to them and you will find that they will not only drink in it but they will bathe in it so heated bird baths are a great resource to keep in the winter and you maybe get a heated bird bath or if you have a little uh, wildlife pond or creek in your backyard sometimes people will put a heater like similar to what uh, someone might use for a cattle trough or something to keep a heater in the the pond to keep it open. So definitely an important and a good resource to have, but it's important to keep it warm, or I'm sorry, to keep it clean and to keep it filled. How how filled should it be? Is there a rule of thumb? Is there
0: such a thing as having too much water in the in the birdbath?
1: You know, Shereen, I, I am not really sure about that. I've heard different theories on, well, if it's too deep, the birds will drown.
0: Mm-hmm. Again,
1: I... <laughs> I don't dismiss animals' intelligence at all. I mean, a bird's not going to walk in the middle of a 100 feet deep lake and drown. So, I don't necessarily think it would in the bird bath. But some people do, which I think this is a good idea, put a rock or something in the middle of their bird bath so that birds, what I think that does is actually provide more surface area for birds to land on. So, they don't just have the rim of the bird bath, but they also can land in the middle of the bird bath. So, I do think that that is a good idea. What are some things that
0: communities are doing to encourage bird survival? We hear about bird-friendly design an awful lot, but what does that mean exactly?
1: Yeah, that bird-friendly design, thinking about the needs of birds. and, And I just want to point out that, remember, even for a program like this, when you are looking specifically at one group of animals, remember that's not just that group of animals that helps. We have a whole huge interconnected set of wildlife and insects and plants out there. So helping one species quite often ends up helping a lot of other species. And so bird friendly, you want to be thinking about the way buildings are constructed, the windows you have, the way the windows reflect, you want to think about lights out, doing lights out at night. That's been a big push to not have lights in buildings on skyscrapers. You want to think about the food, or the food that you're providing through plantings. There are a lot of non-native plants out there right now that we are putting into our yards. Think about more what are native plants that could be providing shelter in the winter, that could be providing providing food in the winter. It's getting rid of a lot of the concrete or the mowed grass. One of my big soapboxes has been becoming to not mow so much grass. Grass is literally an ecological desert. It is just a dead zone. Now, don't get me wrong. Put me on a blanket in the grass on a nice warm summer day and I'll read my book all day laying in that grass. Mm-hmm. But when you think about pollinators, wildlife, birds, it provides nothing. It doesn't even have insects for the birds to eat. So thinking more about not having so much So much, I don't want to say open space, because you can still have a lot of open space, but scattered throughout that open space, planting native plants, planting shrubs, trees, bushes that are much friendlier to our native wildlife. Are there things we should stop doing that you think, just please stop doing that? I, I, I'm probably going to get uh, certain companies or people mad at me now, but I would. Uh, you're setting me up here. Um, I would I would stop mowing so much. And when I say that, it doesn't mean you can't have your yard. Just take a two-foot strip along your yard and stop mowing that. Put some trees in there. Put some bushes in there. We've done that on both sides of our yard. Uh, so stop doing so much mowing. Or in May, no mow may has become a common thing many people have probably heard of. Mm-hmm. Stop mowing in May so those plants can get become established and those pollinators can get what they need. No, uh, Not mowing so much is a big one. And also chemical use. I am amazed at the amount of chemicals that are available to anybody nowadays that we can just readily put in our yards mm-hmm. where we are maybe our... Newborns or our dogs are laying in the grass and then sticking their hands, their feet, whatever, in their mouths, tracking into our house. Uh, the seeping into our groundwater, especially if you are in a well system. I live in the country. I have a well. It makes me very concerned when I see all the people that are spraying their yard for insects. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that all seeps into your groundwater and could get into your well systems. And spraying trees, uh, gardens, I it's not uncommon. I'm sure people have heard me say before when people come to me and say, you know, my bluebirds used to be all over my fruit trees, and now they're not there anymore. Why? Well, you're spraying them with chemicals and so it's killing all the insects and that's what the bluebirds want to eat. So I think chemical usage and cutting back on the amount of green grass and non-native plants is a huge step you can do in your own backyard.
0: I always wondered about the the impact that that spraying might have on birds and mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. We we've talked a lot about what, you know, the things we can do but but what do you say to people say who ask, why is it even important? Why should communities care about creating a bird-friendly environment? Why, why is this top of mind?
1: Well, I think that comes down to then what is it that you want out of life? What is it that you feel makes a good quality life for you, your children, your grandchildren? It is... When I think of life, I think there is a need for cities and towns and buildings and all of that, but I also know that wildlife and nature is a huge part of my life, and they do know through a lot of studies that nature and wildlife are very important for all people, even if you don't realize the importance it is for you or for your family. It is hugely significant, and there i i reference this movie a lot there was a children's movie some years back called wall-e about the little the little robot and i thought that movie was phenomenal when there's scenes of these humans all living in this spaceship, essentially, and they don't communicate with each other. They only communicate through technology. They don't have plants. They don't have animals. And then they find this one little plant and people are blown away by it and they fall in love with it. So it's it's extremely important nature to all of us, even if we don't notice the direct effect it has on us regularly. Um, it does impact all of us. Here's an
0: observation from a listener. Uh, Kate, uh, Kathy sent an email in saying that evening grosbeaks have returned to the North Woods in large numbers, in, in the 30s, uh, at and around feeders near, uh, uh, and up to a hundred near Sailor mm-hmm. Lake. Also, a red-bellied woodpecker, a regular visitor, pileated woodpeckers, as we talked about earlier, goldfinch, purple finch. More chickadees than in the last few mm-hmm. years. Um, all regular visitors uh, and using sunflower seeds and suet. We're going to talk about food in just a little bit. But um, why is it that these birds are are here now? I mean, is it has there been a change in weather? I know you talked earlier about how some you know, some birds come some years and some they some don't. But is this unusual?
1: Yeah, a lot of those birds that they are would be common to, you know, easily found here in Wisconsin during the winter. The kind of the anomaly is the evening growth speak. Like I said, we can have them throughout the northern part of the state, but there has been reports of large pushes of gross beaks this year, of evening gross beaks. And I know, especially in the northern part of the state, people have had huge numbers, hundreds at their feeder and huge, huge flocks of them. I had really hoped we would see them down here. And I know early in the winter, there was a few reports around the Altoona area of people having evening gross beaks. I know up in Holcomb, up in Bloomer. I've talked to a few people who've had them at their feeders. I have not seen one yet this Mm -hmm. winter, so we are not seeing them here in the masses in the Chippewa Valley, and probably not in southern Wisconsin. But there are large numbers up in the northern part, and you know, I have to admit, I I did I have not read fully of why they see such a big push of them this year, but I would assume, I guess, a lot of it does just go back to those basic needs: food, water, shelter, and it could have also been an extremely productive year, so there's a lot more of them out there, and it could. Would be that there was in their normal habitat, their normal range, there was an issue that has really pushed them to different locations. Some bird species also tend to be what we refer to as nomadic and or eruptive. And that's a little bit different than when we think of migration. Eruptive means that there's a huge year of them that year and they just push out all over the place. And we'll see that with the snowy owls. Sometimes we have huge eruptive years with snowy owls or pine siskins. And some species are what we refer to as nomadics. Like if we talk about crossbills, they are a species that really don't seem to follow a lot of patterns. They just kind of go where they want to go and do what they want to do. And that's really more of a nomadic species. Um, so exactly, I, I don't know for sure why the grosbeaks beaks are in such high numbers this year, but they are around, so look for them. You're hearing Jeanette Kelly. She's our guest today on Route 51 as we continue this discussion on the
0: wild birds of Wisconsin's winters. Coming up, feeding tips to lure a wide range of birds to your own backyard and ways to uh, prepare for the winter in Wisconsin. We'd like to hear from you too. You can join us at 800-780-9742 or email ideas at wpr.org. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Our guest today is Jeanette Kelly, a professional ornithologist and an expert on bird migration. What would you like to know? You can email us at ideas at or call us at 800-780-9742 with your bird questions. Let's talk a little bit about food. How difficult is it for birds to find enough food on their own to
1: survive in the winter? So that is a question that I am often asked, and I think people might get mad at me sometimes when I look at them and I say, you know they don't actually need you to survive (laughs) (laughs) because backyard bird feeding for many years now has been the number one outdoor activity for people. And we spend a tremendous amount of money on bird seed to Mm -hmm. feed birds. So feeding is really important. And I would never say don't do it because I really believe in that connection between nature and humans. And if you don't have something to make that connection, then you're never going to care. So I think that any way that you connect to nature that is safe for both of you, I think is extremely important. So birds can survive without backyard bird feeding. Is backyard bird feeding helpful? Absolutely. And there has actually been a fair number of studies that have shown that bird survivability does increase, especially in really cold temperatures like we had talked about earlier. They've done a fair number of studies on chickadees and looked at chickadees that had access to feeders in really extreme temperatures, how that did increase their survivability. Hmm. Chickadees will still survive without your backyard feed, but it does help birds through the winter. It does also help them with breeding and productivity in the summer. But the winter months, it is certainly helpful. And we see when we fill those feeders after they've been empty for a while, how quickly birds flock to them. And uh, besides,
0: feeding birds is fun, too. I mean, <laughs> it, it is so fun.
1: And you never know what you're going to get. Exactly.
0: <laughs> we have Joe on the line from to March. He uh, is looking for some winter birds. Hi, Joe. Thanks for calling. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Um, yeah, I'm out here uh, right now looking for some rough-legged hawks, mm. snowy owls, um, and we often see uh, northern shrikes mm. come down to winter. Um, I was wondering if you could describe sort of the unique
1: northern shrike. Oh, sure. What th- And have fun, and I hope you see all of those birds, and maybe even some of the—I uh, know they've got short-eared owls in that area also— Northern yeah. shrikes. I've actually
0: saw a, I actually saw a prairie chicken this morning, too. Oh,
1: well. you're having a good day, Birdie, and that's fantastic. So far, yeah. That's great. Yeah, northern shrikes. Shrikes are a really cool bird. And if you're not familiar with the Shrike, if you're, if you're thinking, Jeanette, I don't know what you're talking about, definitely grab a field guide, grab Google something, and quick look it up because the shrike is a super cool bird. We have two potential shrikes we can see, a loggerhead shrike and a northern shrike. In Wisconsin here, we are most likely almost always looking at a northern shrike and we tend to see them more in the winter time and we usually have one just south of beaver creek in the winter i haven't seen it yet although someone said there was one at our bird feeder just this last week so northern shrikes they're about the size a little bit smaller than a blue jay they are a beautiful pearly gray with black and white markings on them now the nickname for a shrike is a butcher bird a butcher bird. And the reason why they call them butcher birds is they are a predatory bird and they will hunt birds, large insects, small mammals. And what they do is they will take, say, a mole that they capture and they will impale it on a piece of barbed wire or a thorn on an American plum tree or something like that and leave it for later. And I have actually seen this where I have come across a barbed wire fence and there were dragonflies and small rodents impaled on the thorns of this wire. Seems a little gruesome, but oh, Mm -hmm. come on. How cool is that? I mean, they're utilizing tools. They're utilizing their resources. I think that that is truly amazing. And so this is a really good time of the year to go out and look for northern shrikes. You'll often find them Perched on a power line, perched on top of a tree, and, like I said, they're about the size of a blue jay, pearly gray with some pretty uh striking black and white features on them. well, thank
0: you, Joe, for calling. I really appreciate that. that's a great call and uh, wow i i I never knew um that to expect that kind of thing from from birds it's, yeah. yeah, fascinating. Some of the challenges that birds uh, struggle with of course the avian flu other life-threatening bacteria this is particularly in the summer months of course but and when this happens we've been cautioned not to put out our feeders mm-hmm. is that much of an issue in the winter
1: keeping our concern about diseases and spreading spreading of disease is still really important in the winter time and I it is very important to keep your feeders clean all throughout the year now I'm going to be honest and profess to everyone that I don't like cleaning bird feeders. I don't like doing it. I probably don't do it as much as I should, but I am aware of how important it is. And it is definitely something you should do. And that's all times of year, especially maybe, you know, maybe more so in the winter when birds are congregating because they're looking for that easy food source. So things to think about when feeding birds with bird feeders is purchasing feeders that are going to... Maybe not allow for feces to gather. So a tube feeder where a bird is perched on it but isn't fully sitting on it versus a platform feeder where a bird can be completely on top of that feeder and could be excreting right directly into the food a hopper feeder that stores a lot of food but has a a roof over it to keep your feeder dry, your food dry to help prevent things from molding and rotting. Those are very important things when thinking about keeping birds healthy. And again, just cleaning up your feeders, cleaning your bird baths and then cleaning up underneath your feeders is also extremely important. And to touch base back on the food and and the feeding of the birds, in the winter Great foods to feed birds: black oil sunflower seed is every bird's most favorite type of seed. So if you're going to feed one thing, buy, excuse me, black oil sunflower seed. Another great food source in the winter time. Again, thinking about high fat, high protein peanuts. I know peanuts are pricey, but peanuts, either in the shell or out of the shell. Out of the shell, you're going to have smaller birds that are able to access them, like tufted titmice and the nuthatches and chickadees. Peanuts in the shell, the blue jays love them. So those are a great food source. And suet, again, high-fat, high-protein, providing a lot of energy for the birds. And if you want to bring other things in like millet, millet, white millet, not red millet, but white millet is important in the wintertime for a lot of the ground feeding birds like the juncos, all those juncos that visit us in the wintertime, they are seeking out a lot of that millet. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the probably the most important seeds that, as seeds and foods that you could offer in the wintertime. You said good suet. How do you tell good suet from suet that maybe
0: isn't quite so appropriate?
1: Sure. Well, if you, you can feed either store-purchased suet or you can buy suet from a butcher shop. Suet is just the rendered fat from animals is what it is. And if you are buying it from a butcher shop, you can just make sure that the meat is all cleaned off of it and you're down to just the pure suet. You'll also see during deer hunting season here, it's not uncommon to see carcasses hung in trees and you'll see birds picking away at the carcass is collecting the marrow and the fat from the carcass. So having suet that is uh, 100% suet and or pure suet, but then if you want to have suet with peanuts or, or seed in it, that is fine too. It might help attract other birds to that suet. Things that we don't need to worry about in the wintertime with suet is they do have some, some suet specifically for the summertime that have berries in them or that have higher melting points so that they don't melt in our hot summer
0: sun. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> what about
0: other things that you might have in your house that, that you could put out, like fruits? Uh, uh, is, is that a, something that you could put out for birds or is that not a good idea?
1: Not so much necessary in the wintertime. In the summertime, you certainly could. But the things you want to think about, especially if it comes to, say, dried cranberries or uh, things like that. They have a lot of sugar in them. Also, just thinking along that same lines of what's in your house, peanuts or sunflower seeds. If you have peanuts or sunflower seeds that you're consuming, they are likely cooked in oil and have a lot of salt in them. Mm -hmm. So those are things that are unnecessary for birds and who potentially could be harmful. So if you do have things in your own house that you are feeding birds, just make sure it's a a whole food. So it's not a food that has been processed or has things added to it. But in the summertime, more of those fruit-eating birds Birds are a possibility and there are certain things you could could put out for them. Although often you might end up attracting butterflies more so than birds, but you know what? That's okay. Mm-hmm. What about corn? I've heard kind of conflicting opinions about that yeah a lot of a lot of birds will eat corn blue jays blue jays like it. If you are a fan of the corvids the the crows, ravens, things like that, they will eat corn also, and some people don't like corn just because it does also attract the squirrels uh squirrels have to eat too, but uh I understand people's frustration over feeding the squirrels sometimes,
0: sure. You know, listening to you, you're so enthusiastic about this and it's just infectious. How did you get started in this in this career? What drew you to it?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I actually I, I grew up with parents that we lived out in the country, lived out in the woods and my parents both had backgrounds in biology and they certainly instilled the love of nature and the outdoors in my my siblings and I, my two brothers. But I grew up knowing I loved animals and wanted to work with animals and had every intention in working with mammals. I have an older brother who is a wildlife biologist. He was working with bears and elk and deer, and that's what I assumed I would do. And the very first job I had, I ended up working at Patuxent Wildlife Research Center in Maryland, and someone stuck an American kestrel in my hand, which is a small raptor. It's a small falcon, and it stuck its talons in me and bit me with its curved beak, and I fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> That's and all it took. <laughs> That's all it took. And and what made me fall in love with it is the fact that this was an animal that was small enough to fit in my hands, but it had the ability to inflict so much pain on me and still had so much – it had such an influence. It had so much control over me when – Really, I, I normally you would think, "Well, I'm so much bigger than this. I could, I could eliminate this if I wanted to." But that small bird had so much power over me that it just made me fall in love, and that is what then sent me down a path of birds, and specifically raptors. My, my heart is truly with raptors. When the caller mentioned the rough-legged hawk, oh, that makes my heart flutter. They're so beautiful. They're so gorgeous. But really, it was that experience out in Maryland that just made me realize how fascinating birds are and just something I wanted to spend my life working with. So I I dropped the mammals. I dropped all of that and jumped into the world of birds. Well, why do you think that
0: Birding is still so popular. It's This is something that, that has remained steady. It's passed from generation to generation. Why has this endured so long?
1: I think because it's accessible. It's accessible to anybody. You You don't even need a pair of binoculars. You can just go out there and listen or see what you can see. And also... Because it's a surprise, you never really know what's going to show up. It could be a northern shrike comes to your bird feeder. It could be a a black and white warbler shows up in December. You never know what's going to be there. So it can always be a surprise. And it's something that you can do alone by yourself or it's something you can do in a huge group. So I think it's just it's very welcoming and accessible to all people. And it's just it's always an adventure.
0: Is there a bird that you would love to see in the wild that you just haven't? Is there like something on your must-see list that that you just yearn to see and you haven't? Stellar Sea Eagle. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and one what is head, it what is it it's, it's a type of eagle it's a very large eagle they uh, you find them in Russia and they there was one that showed up throughout the U.S. last year and was fouled from Alaska all the way over to Massachusetts and that is just a huge stunning bird with really distinct markings huge yellow bill and yellow feet I think that would be phenomenal to see are you gonna do it? You know, I I started thinking. I've been watching reports. I'm like, if it shows up, I I might just buy that ticket and tell my boss I'm taking a little quick vacay. <laughs> Although maybe I could even count that as work. <laughs>
0: well, I don't see why not, right? You, you, I mean, it's research. Yeah, it exactly. Like it. We've got about a minute and a half left in our time together, and I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share information about any events that you know about that might be coming up for people oh, yeah. who want to get involved.
1: Yes, and. Th- You know, get involved no matter where you live, no matter where you're listening from, there is a birder near you or there is a birding group near you. So just because I'm in the Chippewa Valley outside of Eau Claire does not mean you need to be here to participate in birds. Anywhere you are, seek out those local areas. And a few things to think about. Uh, coming up throughout the state, at least, would be the Christmas Bird, or I'm sorry, not the Christmas Bird Count, the backyard, the Great Backyard Bird Count comes up in February. The Midwest Crane Count will happen in April. Those are two big things to look for. If you happen to be in the Chippewa Valley or Eau Claire, uh, if you're free tomorrow morning, we will be doing a bird banding demonstration at Beaver Creek Reserve. That's a great thing to come and see and see birds up close. And also in April, Beaver Creek Reserve and Gaylord Nelson Audubon's Society, and actually Landmark Conservancy at a Menominee will be supporting us this year too. We run a two and a half day bird school. It's a fantastic opportunity for new birders. It can, maybe you've never even held a pair of binoculars. This class is for you. It's a great opportunity to learn about birds, learn about identification, learn about ecology and natural history, and hang out with some people that love talking about birds. Sounds wonderful. Jeanette, this has been absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Shireen.
0: You're listening to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward, once again, extending a sincere thanks to our guest, Jean- Jeanette Kelly. Our producers are Joy Ratchkramer and Kate Spranger. Our executive producer is Rick Ryer. Rick is also our on-air producer today. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of today's program as well as our previous programs at wpr.org slash route51. If you have an idea for a future show, email us, ideas at wpr.org. We'd love to hear from you. Next week, we'll be back with another fascinating discussion, and we hope you'll join us. Until then, we're heading out of town.